If you would, please open your Bibles again to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We'll be looking at the end of the chapter, verses 21 to 35 this morning. I don't know why, but in studying for this and then in preparing this message, I... Um, I had extreme feelings of elation and the word I'm, it's like disappointment, but it's more. And maybe you'll be able to understand that <clears throat> by the time I finish. So let's move into this message on Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. In this chapter so far, we've seen Christ warning his disciples to be humble and harmless if they want to be great in his kingdom, to avoid offenses and not to despise the little ones and there he was referring to all believers, not just children. He teaches the basics of church discipline and how we are to deal with other believers when they sin. And now, as we turn to today's text, in the last part of chapter 18, Jesus discusses with Peter how often we are to forgive sinners. And then Jesus gives a strong parable about a king who took account of his servants and how they'd managed his resources. And then he dealt with one who had received the king's mercy, but then shown no respect to a fellow servant. Now, as we saw last week, in verse 20, Jesus concluded his summary of church discipline by assuring his disciples that when a judgment is made by at least two or three people, two or three believers, who correctly apply the word of God in their decision, in their judgment, he says that he will also be standing with them in agreement. But another critical aspect addressed by verses 15 to 20 is forgiveness. When a believer who has sinned genuinely confesses his sin and repents of it, picking up on the requirement to forgive the repentant sinner, Peter, of course, jumps right in, supposing to be magnanimous in his suggestion. Verse 21, this is right after Jesus says, there I am, and two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You see, up until Jesus answered to Peter, the standard taught by the rabbis was that a person who sins should be forgiven up to three times, but no more, but no more. It must therefore have seemed to Peter to be a real stretch of his charity to extend forgiveness from three to seven times. However, in his reply, Jesus doesn't specify a certain number of times greater than Peter's limit of seven. By answering I do not say to you up to seven times, 
but up to 70 times 7, Jesus means that there is to be no limit to forgiveness. He isn't saying that 490 times is the limit, and we need to keep a little pad, scratch mark, you know, where we, how many times do we forgive this person? By, her, by hyperbole, he's teaching that forgiveness has no limit for a Christian. He's not saying once you get to 491, that's it, cut them off. That's not what Jesus is saying. We're to have no limit. We shouldn't even keep track of how many times we forgive someone. You may be saying, well, yeah, okay. But I'll tell you that very statement is the foundation of so much heartache and so many arguments in relationships, in marriages. But we should not ever keep track of how many times we forgive someone. Not in our minds, not in our journals, not in our record-keeping books, nowhere. We should always forgive those who are truly repentant, no matter how many times they ask. A genuine follower of Christ can never reach the limits of love, because there aren't any. In Romans chapter 13, verse 10, we read, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, we read, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own is not provoked, thinks no evil, keeps no record of wrongs, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, Peter's mistake was in asking, excuse me again, His mistake was his perspective. He was asking for limits and, and measures of forgiveness. His perspective on forgiveness was quantitative. How much, how many times. Numbers. It's qualitative. But where there is love, there can be no limits or measures. And that's qualitative. What's the quality of our approach to forgiveness? What's the quality of our forgiveness? The nature of forgiveness is a profound aspect of reconciling grace. Forgiveness isn't easy. I think we all know that. To forgive means that a person genuinely loves. And this love can and should go beyond the circumstances of the offense to the offending person himself. Therefore, the wronged person should truly care more about the offending person than about what or she has done. Forgiveness liberates. And I'll say it liberates both the one who was offended as well as the offender. It liberates. And any refusal to forgive is simply a power play that is supposed to limit the offender, holding the guilty person under their thumb, 
or power. And doing that is, in itself, a very serious sin. Christian character calls for humility, grace, honesty, mercy, love, forgiveness, and much more. When we live in an atmosphere of humility and honesty and love, we have to take some risks and we have to expect some hurts. But unless these characteristics result in forgiveness, relationships can't be healed or strengthened. How many times, you've read it, how many times in the New Testament alone are we commanded to forgive? It's not a suggestion, by the way. God never makes suggestions, never. And he never asks us to do things. He commands. He doesn't say, well, if you feel like it. He says, no, do it. Unless the Christian characteristics result in forgiveness, as I said, relationships can't be healed or strengthened. We're told so many times, we're commanded to forgive many times. The requirement to forgive in the New Testament alone is referred to over 50 times. So clearly, unforgiveness is a sin and one that actually eats away at the person who is unforgiving, while the offender often just moves on with life until the Holy Spirit convicts it. I find it so fascinating that people who are unforgiving feel justified in their sin. And they make all kinds of self-righteous excuses. But we need to under, understand before we move on that Jesus wasn't promoting a careless or a shallow or a glib forgiveness. Christian love isn't blind. We read that in Philippians 1, verses 9 and 10. The forgiveness that Christ calls us to is on the basis of the instructions he gave in the immediate previous verses, verses 15 to 20, on church discipline. If a brother is guilty of a repeated sin, he should find strength and power to overcome that sin through the encouragement of his loving and forgiving brethren, his friends, others in the church, his pastor. He shouldn't find a bunch of people pointing fingers. But he should find people who are eagerly looking to, to forgive him eagerly looking for him to repent. If a brother is guilty, like I said, of a repeated sin, rather than being condemned and feeling fear and judgment, he should find strength and power to overcome that sin in the church in the fellowship. If we condemn a brother, giving him no hope, we bring out the worst in him or her. But if we create an atmosphere of love and forgiveness, we can be used by God to bring out the best in him. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Now, the parable Jesus taught to illustrate what he's been teaching. That's where we are now. Quite a story. And one that brings out some strong emotions, even though we know it's just a parable. 
I know when I was reading it, and I've read it many times, but every time I get to a point where I, <laughs> I just want to throttle one of these guys. We have a king, a very large amount of money, two specific servants, and an unnumbered group of other servants. Because of the large amounts of money involved, it's probable that the servants of the king that Jesus has in mind would be provincial or regional governors who owed the king money from their taxation of the people. Or it could be officers of the court who were responsible for the daily management of various aspects of the kingdom. Either way, they were people who handled a lot of money for the king. So the story begins with the king calling his servants before him to learn of the state of, the, of affairs that were under their responsibility, including an accounting of the finances they were responsible for. We would call that an audit. And this would be a normal periodic activity. But then when one of his servants came to report, <clears throat> along with his audited finances, it was discovered that he was short the incredible amount of 10,000 talents. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus speaking. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. Now, maybe you've done this too. In researching the value of talent, which is a measure of money, it's easy to be quickly confused with all the various measurements used in different kingdoms and different periods of time. It usually involved precious metals like silver and gold, and it was the largest denomination of money used. People who are much more knowledgeable than me have done the research, and they've come up with figures from a low of this figures of these 10,000 talents from a low of $12 million up to a billion dollars as the value of 10,000 talents. A very wide span, but whatever the specifics, the point Jesus is making is that this servant owed the king a humongous amount of money and an amount that was absolutely impossible to pay. Needless to say, the king was quite upset and commanded that the man, his wife, children, and all their possessions be sold so that the king could recoup at least some of what was owed. You see, in ancient times, a lot of times today, serious consequences awaited those who couldn't pay their debts. A person lending money could seize the borrower who couldn't pay and force him and or his family to work until the debt was paid. The debtor would also be thrown into prison or his family could be sold into slavery to help pay off the debt. It was hoped that the debtor, while in prison, would sell off his land holdings 
or that relatives would pay the debt. If not, the debtor could remain in prison for life. Before we go on, I've always found it interesting, and it's said several times in Scripture, throw him into prison until he could pay off the debt. And I've always found that a ridiculous statement. Because if you're in prison, what can you do to pay off a debt? Nothing. Nothing. Even today, when I was doing prison ministry down in New Mexico, I asked the guys that were in our, in our Bible study, the inmates who were there, I said, so uh, what do you guys get for the work you do here? The first time we asked, they said, well, we get a quarter a day. 25 cents a day. A few years later, we asked the question, and I think somebody said a dollar. A dollar a day, and that accumulates into their account so they can buy cigarettes and so forth. Interesting. But and so we have verse 26. The servant therefore fell down before him, before the king, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. <clears throat> then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. So the servant did the only sensible thing he could when he heard that judgment. He fell at the feet of his king and master, upon his knees or on his face, to the ground, not being able to stand before him or look him in the eye, much less to repay the debt. Master, have patience with me, he said, and I will pay you all. The servant's promise was ridiculous. It made no sense. He spoke as if all he needed was time, <clears throat> time for him and patience from his king. They would be able to pay this massive debt. The disciples who were listening to Jesus tell this parable must have laughed when they heard that. It was laughable. It was ridiculous. The servant's case was hopeless, except for one thing. The king was a man of compassion. He assumed the loss, wrote off the debt, and forgave the servant. This meant that the man was free, and that he and his family would not be sold into slavery. The servant didn't deserve the forgiveness. It was purely an act of mercy on the part of the king. This was not, folks, this was not justice. It was an incredible, beautiful display of grace. And I hope you could tell by now that as Jesus is telling this parable, the king represents our heavenly father. It represents God. Now Paul speaks of this in his letter to the church at Colossae. But he was speaking to the Colossians about God. And he says to them, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Elsewhere we read that God has thrown our sins to the very depths of the sea, they're gone. They're gone. 
But then the parable moves from beautiful grace and love and compassion to merciless brutality. Verse 28. But that servant went out. This guy who was just forgiven 12 million to a billion dollars, he went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A hundred denarius. So he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, you know what he says, have patience with me and I will pay you all. But he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Again, ridiculous. Now, a hundred denarii wasn't a small sum, but compared to 10,000 talents, it was a pittance. Some have calculated that this servant's debt was about one six hundred thousandth of the larger debt. A denarius was the common payment for one day's labor. So this second servant owed a little more than three months' wages. By the way, the larger amount people have calculated, a person would have to work seven days a week for 25 to 30 years to get close to paying the lowest measurement of that amount. Now, when the first servant physically abused and even throttled the second servant, by the way, that word throttled is Greek. It's the Greek word. The debtor fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Again, using the exact same words that the first servant had said to the king. But the first servant had no compassion, had no patience, no, no grace, no mercy. And he threw the other one into prison, despite the fact that this debt, unlike the other, actually could be repaid. This was a hideous, heartless, and cruel thing to do, especially with the awareness that he himself had just received incredible forgiveness from the king. In word we'd use today, that was just so wrong what he did. But it wasn't done in secret. And when their fellow servants saw what was done, they were very upset, and rightly so. And they took action to right the wrong. They went and told their king. Verse 31. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had after he had called him, said to him, this is the first servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry. The Greek word was wroth and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So, what goes around comes around. Their fellow servants went to the king 
and in explicit detail. The Greek here is, is profound in, in the, 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 the detail that they told their king. They told him of all the injustice suffered at the hand of the very one he'd so compassionately forgiven a huge debt not long before. The first servant didn't have his freedom very long. But when the king found out what he'd done to the other servant, he was very angry and canceling his forgiveness. The king threw the wicked servant into prison to the torturers, not the executioners. And it could read to the jail keepers. He sent them into prison until he could pay the debt, which in all practicality meant he was given a life sentence. Then Jesus says in verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So Jesus gives the punchline of the story, the all-important lesson and application of the parable, that God the Father in heaven will act in a similar way to any and all of Christ's followers who choose to be cruel and hard-hearted, merciless and unforgiving to our brothers and sisters, if we do not, from our heart, forgive our brothers and sisters their sin. In other words, this cannot be a sham or a fake action. Oh yeah, I forgive you. No, <laughs> it must be genuine. He says, from our heart. And there's only one who knows our heart. Who's that? That's God. He knows the heart. So he knows whether our act of forgiveness is genuine or not. In truth, any so-called Christian who would act in that way brings very serious doubt as to whether they have actually been saved. Now, because God has forgiven all our sins, you and me, all our sins, we should not withhold forgiveness from others. When we realize how completely Christ has forgiven us and how much he has forgiven. It should elicit in us an attitude of thankfulness and forgiveness toward others. When we don't forgive others, we are setting ourselves above Christ and above Christ's law of love. That's a very dangerous place to be. Over the years, when discussing forgiveness and unforgiveness, I frequently find people who say, oh, I could never forgive someone so for that. No, I, ju I just couldn't. Such high-handed, self-righteous, and self-justifying sin Scripture tells us in several places that Jesus forgives all our sins when we confess, repent, and come to him. All. How dare we set ourselves above Christ in a stubborn sin of unforgiveness? Clearly, it means that you either haven't bothered to read the Bible, 
are ignorant of one of its most basic truths, or think you're so special, so different, that you're above God's commands. Or maybe you don't really care what God says, and you're just pretending to be a Christian anyway. Beware. One who does that is choosing to walk on very thin ice, shifting sand. And certainly they have to be selfish with an unstable mind. A person who would do that does not care about truth. They haven't submitted to Christ. They've purposely chosen to be a fake, not realizing or believing that they're on a very slippery slope that leads right down into the lake of fire. Let me ask you and myself, what was your debt to God? What was mine? When we came to Christ, every one of us carried an unimaginably huge debt. Every sin we had ever done or thought, as well as every sin that we will yet commit or think in our future. All of that was on our shoulders. I think of Pilgrim in the Pilgrim's Progress carrying that large, heavy bag around wherever he went. Of course, our debt was much larger. Our debt was much larger, but the symbol is there, like the 10,000 talents in the parable. Our debt like that servant's, was so great that it could never be paid in even the longest possible lifetime. So if we had no Savior at the end of our lives, we'd still be carrying that unpayable, huge debt. The result would be like that servant's, at the end of the parable, but much worse. It would take eternity in the lake of fire to burn off that debt, and even then we'd never be free of it. But like the king in the story, our God has compassion. So much so that he sent his perfect spotless son to live a human life in which he never sinned and then to be sacrificed, slaughtered, murdered on the cross for us in order to pay off our debt. And not ours only, but the huge debt of every person who has ever lived and will yet live. All upon Jesus' shoulders. And folks, we need to understand. I know we have our daughter Kelly watches, watches the movie every Easter time. The Mel Gibson film of Jesus' torture and crucifixion. It's a horrible thing to watch because it's very realistic, visually, physically. But we need to understand, and maybe you've not heard this, we need to understand that the greater part of Christ's sacrifice at the cross wasn't physical. It wasn't visible. You couldn't see it. Because what we saw, what's there, as horrific as that was, as horrific as it's displayed in the movie, people just couldn't see 
we can't see the immense spiritual pain and horror of Jesus taking all the wicked, perverted, evil sins of mankind over all time upon his shoulders. Upon his shoulders. Shoulders that had previously never felt any sin at all. Just imagine what he was experiencing. We wonder why Jesus was saying, my God, my God, why, has, why have you forsaken me? I really don't believe he was talking so much about the nails in his hands and his feet. And I, I, I don't believe so. He was experiencing the worst horrors ever done by mankind, ever. And again, shoulders that had previously never felt any sin at all. You know, we read in 2 Corinthians, that Jesus took upon himself our sins so that we could receive his righteousness. It's called the great trade or the great swap. Imagine that. He took all of our sins, not just yours and yours and mine, over all of history. And then all we needed to do was to acknowledge that, confess that, yes, that's that little bit over there, that's, those are my sins. I'm guilty. All we have to do is admit that, confess that, and repent of those. And we benefit. We benefit from the torture, the slaughter of Jesus on that cross. So if we acknowledge, confess our sins, and repent, knowing that Jesus has paid our debt in full by his sacrifice, we no longer carry that huge bag, but we have been forgiven forever, forever. Unlike the king in the parable, God doesn't take back his forgiveness. Hmm. And so we not only escape from eternity in the lake of fire, sulfur and brimstone, but God, by his grace and in his mercy and love for us, he doesn't let us escape that, but he adopts us into his family. He receives us into his kingdom, and he seals our salvation with the gift of his Holy Spirit coming to live, to abide within us forever. Forever. People wonder, why, why is Jesus called the spotless lamb? Well, that's one of the reasons we encourage people to read the Old Testament. Because every year it was required that a spotless lamb or goat, spotless, pure, perfect, be sacrificed for the sins of the nation. But the last sacrifice that was necessary was Jesus on the cross in the place of that lamb at the time of the Passover being sacrificed for all once and for all we're told in Hebrews once and for all that's why in Revelation we see him appearing as a lamb as though slain 
the marks of his murder are on him. Are on him. What does God do with our sins? He throws them to the bottom of the sea. They're gone. They don't exist anymore. Except in our memory. And even that, I believe, one day will be washed clean. That's all we have to do. And this parable represents that so well. With that king, with that compassion. Forgiving a debt of 12 million to a billion dollars. Not giving him time, not having him pay it off, not even reducing it down to something less. He just writes it off. What does God do with our sins when we come to Christ? He writes them off. They're gone. They're absolutely gone. What did we read over and over? It's actually a verse that if it was a laser, it would burn a hole in our Bible. We read it so much. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Forgive them. They're gone. And then to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our sins made us dirty, filthy. But he cleanses us even as he forgives us. Why do we go to the Lord every day, sometimes several times a day? Because we sin every day. But when we go to him and confess and receive his cleansing, we go to bed clean. We're clean. Because of what Jesus did on that cross. He paid that price. The price required in the Old Testament. That's why the sacrificial parts, the, 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 the ritual parts of the Old Testament, we need to understand them and read them and study them, but they are no longer in effect. Because Jesus has once for all taken all our sins and paid that price. And again, the lesson, the lesson of the parable. If God has so forgiven us, can we do any less than to forgive those, all those who have sinned against us? Do you think that the wrongs that have been done against you can hold a candle to the wrongs that Jesus endured? How dare we? When I hear people say, oh, I just couldn't forgive, I jump on them. I do. Not very kindly either. And I don't know why, but it's usually women that say, oh, I just couldn't forgive that sin. I know men do it too, but for some reason, in my experience, it's been mostly women. I don't understand that. But can anybody say, well, the wrong that he did to me was so bad, I'll never forgive him. What he did to me was worse than what we've done to God? Really? Really? No. Ephesians chapter 4 commands us, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, any of you know that? Musically, Ephesians 4.32, 
Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ has forgiven you. Da da. Ephesians four thirty-two. You should have learned that in Sunday school sometime. It's a great way to memorize verses, but the truth of that is so heavy. We're commanded to forgive one another, to be kind to one another, to be tender-hearted to one another, just as God in Christ has done for us. And then 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Speaking of Jesus, speaking of Jesus, the one that John himself leaned against at the Last Supper, he said, and he himself, Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. Don't get lost in that. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. To explain propitiation, the actual translation is mercy seat. That lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But it means the atoning sacrifice. That's where the high priest sprinkled the blood of that spotless lamb. Every Yom Kippur on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. So using that word now just means atoning sacrifice, which is what Jesus was and is for us. Heavenly Father, it's hard to find words. In fact, we don't have words any stronger than Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this teaching of Christ to his disciples and through them to us. But even more, Lord, thank you for what this parable tells us. Tells us about your forgiveness of us and tells us of how puny our claims on anybody to justify our unforgiveness could possibly be. No, Lord, we thank you that you also liberate us by commanding us to forgive others, to not walk around in a life of bitterness, which is what people who are unforgiving do. Thank you, Lord. Because in both cases, there's liberation. There's liberation. By being forgiven and by forgiving. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.